0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash Sleepy and use code Sleepy to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com slash Sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Thank you very, very much, Michael, for donating and being a part of making this show. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Michael is a brand new patron of the Sleepy Podcast on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can support creators of the work that you like. So if you would also like to be a part of making this show and get cool perks for donating, just go to Patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donate even a dollar a month it goes a really long way at five dollars a month you get all these extra poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed Um, but no matter how much you donate i will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do and if you'd like to get a nice little fun christmas gift for someone you know who does listen to sleepy you can donate um, on patreon.com and then just send a message um, telling me to give a shout-out to a friend or a family member. So, again, if you'd like to be a part of making this show and maybe give a fun little Christmas gift uh, to someone who listens to Sleepy, go to patreon.com slash sleepy Thank you. And the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Canaan. Well, tonight we have another Christmas theme story. As Christmas is one week away. That is crazy. I'm so excited. Um Definitely in the Christmas spirit this year. Tonight, I'm going to be reading A Christmas Mystery by John William Locke. This was uh, written in the early 1900s and I gotta say, I almost fell asleep reading it. Um, While the writing is very nice, it's pretty boring and Honestly, a perfect story for these chilly December nights. I really think you're going to like falling asleep to this one. So, without further ado, A Christmas Mystery by John William Locke. You're going to hear this story told once and then it's going to repeat itself. So you can fall asleep and stay deep asleep. And now it's the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Christmas Mystery. Three men who had gained great fame and honor throughout the world met unexpectedly in front of the bookstall at Paddington Station. Like most of the great ones of the earth, they were personally acquainted and they exchanged surprised greetings. Sir Angus McCurdy. The eminent physicist scowled at the two others beneath his heavy, black eyebrows. I'm going to a godforsaken place in Cornwall, named Trehanna," said he. That's odd, so am I, croaked Professor Bigglesway. He was a little, untidy man with round spectacles, a fringe of grayish beard, and a weak, rasping voice and he knew more of Assyriology than any man, living or dead. A flippant pupil once remarked that the professor's face was furnished with a Babylonic cuneiform in lieu of features. People called Deverell at Phallus Castle, asked Sir Angus. Yes, replied Professor Biggleswayne. How curious. I am going to the Deverell's too," said the third man. This man was the right honorable Viscount Doyne, the renowned empire builder and administrator around whose solitary and remote life popular imagination had woven many legends. He looked at the world through tired gray eyes and the heavy, drooping blonde mustache seemed tired too and it dragged down the tired face into deep furrows. He was smoking a long black cigar. I suppose we may as well travel down together, said Sir Angus, not very cordially. Lord Doyne said courteously, I have a reserved carriage. The railway company is always good enough to place one at my disposal. It would give me great pleasure if you would share it. The invitation was accepted, and the three men crossed the busy, crowded platform to take their seats in the great express train. A porter, laden with an incredible load of paraphernalia, trying to make his way through the press, happened to jostle Sir Angus McCurdy. He rubbed his shoulder fretfully. Why the whole land should be turned into a bear garden on account of this exploded superstition of Christmas is one of the anomalies of modern civilization. Look at this insensate welter of fools traveling in wild herds to disgusting places merely because it's Christmas. You seem to be traveling yourself, McCarty, said Lord Doyne. Yes, and why the devil I'm doing it? I have not the faintest notion, replied Sir Angus. It's going to be a beast of a journey, he remarked some moments later as the train carried them slowly out of the station. The whole country is under snow, and as far as I can understand, we have to change twice and wind up with a 20-mile motor drive. He was an iron-faced, beetle-browed, stern man, and this morning he did not seem to be in the best of tempers. Finding his companions inclined to be sympathetic, he continued his lamentation. And merely because it's Christmas, I've had to shut up my laboratory and give my young fool as a holiday, just when I was in the midst of a most important series of experiments. Professor Bigglesway, who had heard vaguely of and rather look down upon such few fangled toys as radium and thorium and helium and argon for the latest astonishing development in the theory of radioactivity had brought Angus McCurdy his worldwide fame, said somewhat ironically, if the experiments were so important, why didn't you lock yourself up with your test tubes and electric batteries and finish them alone? Man, said McCurdy, bending across the carriage and speaking with a curious intensity of voice. Do you know I'd give a hundred pounds to be able to answer that question? What do you mean? asked the professor, startled. I should like to know why I'm sitting in this damned train and going to visit a couple of adult-headed society people whom I am scarcely acquainted with, but I might be at home in my own good company, furthering the progress of science. I myself, said the professor, am not acquainted with them at all. It was Sir Angus McCurdy's turn to look surprised. Then why are you spending Christmas with them? I reviewed a ridiculous blank verse tragedy written by Deverell on the death of Sanitary. Historically, it was puerile. I said so in no measured terms. He wrote a letter claiming to be a poet and not an archaeologist. I replied that the day had passed when poets could go with impunity to commit the abominable crime of distorting history. He retorted with some futile argument, and we went on exchanging letters, until his invitation and my acceptance concluded the correspondence. McCurdy, still bending his black brows on him, asked why he had not declined. The professor screwed up his face till it looked more like a cuneiform than ever. He too found the question difficult to answer, but he showed a bold front. I felt it my duty, said he, to teach that preposterous ignoramus something worth knowing about senatory. Besides, I am a bachelor and would sooner spend Christmas. As to whose irritating and meaningless annoyance I cordially agree with you, among strangers, than among my married sister's numerous and nerve-wracking families. Sir Angus McCurdy, the hard, metallic apostle of radioactivity, glanced for a moment out of the window at the gray, frostbitten fields. Then he said, I am a widower. My wife died many years ago, and thank God we had no children. I generally spend Christmas alone. He looked out of the window again. Professor Bigglesway suddenly remembered the popular story of the great scientist's antecedents and reflected that, as McCurdy had once run, a barefoot urchin drew the Glasgow mud. He was likely to have little kith or ken. He himself envied McCurdy. He was always praying to be delivered from his sisters and nephews and nieces, whose embarrassing demands no calculated coldness could repress. Children are the root of all evil, said he. Happy the man who has his quiver empty. Sir Angus McCurdy did not reply at once. When he spoke again, it was with reference to their prospective host. I met Devereux, said he, at the Royal Society's soiree this year. One of my assistants was demonstrating a peculiar property of thorium. Deverell seemed interested. I asked him to come to my laboratory the next day and found he didn't know a damn thing about anything. That's all the acquaintance I have with him. Lord Doyne, the great administrator, who had been warily turning over the pages of an illustrated weekly Chiefly filled with flamboyant photographs of obscure actresses, took his gold glasses from his nose and the black cigar from his lips, and addressed his companions. "I've been considerably interested in your conversation," said he. "And as you've been frank, I'll be frank too." I knew Mrs. Deveril's mother, Lady Carstairs very well years ago and of course Mrs. Devereaux when she was a child Devereaux I came across once in Egypt he had been sent on a diplomatic mission to Tehran as for our being invited on such slight acquaintance little Mrs. Devereaux has the reputation of being the only really successful celebrity hunter in England she inherited the faculty from her mother, who entertained the whole world. We're sure to find archbishops and eminent actors and illustrious divorcees asked to meet us. That's one thing. But why I, who loathe country house parties and children and Christmas as much as Biggleswade, am going down there today? I can no more explain than you can. It's a devilish, odd coincidence. The three men looked at one another. Suddenly, McCurdy shivered and drew his fur coat around him. It is shut, said Doyne. It's just uncanny, said McCurdy, looking from one to the other. What? asked Doyne. Nothing, if you don't feel it. There did seem to be a sudden draft, said Professor Biggleswain. But as both window and door are shut, it could only be imaginary. It wasn't imaginary, muttered McCurdy. Then he laughed harshly. My father and mother came from Comarty, he said with apparent irrelevance. That's the Highlands, said the professor. Aye, said McCurdy. Lord Doyne said nothing, but tugged at his mustache and looked out the window as the frozen meadows and bits of river and willows raced past. A dead silence fell on them. McCurdy broke it with another laugh and took a whiskey flask from his handbag. Have a nip? Thanks, no, said the professor. I have to keep to a strict dietary and I only drink hot milk and water and that sparingly. I have some in a thermos bottle. Lord Doyne also declined the whiskey. McCurdy swallowed a dram and declared himself to be better. The professor took from his bag a foreign review in which a German silist had dared to question his interpretation of a Hittite inscription. Over the man's ineptitude, he fell asleep and snored loudly. To escape from his immediate neighborhood, McCurdy went to the other end of the sea and faced Lord Doyne, who had resumed his gold glasses and his listless contemplation of obscure actresses. McCurdy lit a pipe, Doyne another black cigar. The train thundered on. Presently, they all lunched together in the restaurant car. The windows steamed, but here and there, through a wiped patch of pain, a white world was revealed. The snow was falling. As they passed through Westbury, McCurdy looked mechanically for the famous white horse carved into the chalk of the down. But it was not visible beneath the thick covering of snow. It'll be just like this, all the way to Gehenna, Drana, I mean, said McCurdy. Doy nodded. He had done his life's work amid all extreme fiercenesses of heat and cold and burning droughts in samoons and in icy wildernesses and a ray or two more of the pale sun or a flake or two more of the gentle snow of England mattered to him but little. But Biglesway rubbed the pane with his table napkin and gazed apprehensively at the prospect. If only this wretched train would stop, said he, I would go back again. And he thought how comfortable it would be to sneak home again to his books and thus elude not only the Deverells, but the Christmas jollities of his sister's families, who would think him miles away. But the train was timed not to stop till Plymouth, 235 miles from London, and thither was he being relentlessly carried. Then he quarreled with his food, which brought a certain consolation. The train did stop, however, before Plymouth and D, before Exeter. An accident on the line had dislocated the traffic. The express was held up for an hour, and when it was permitted to proceed, instead of thundering on, it went cautiously subject to continual stoppings It arrived at Plymouth two hours late The travelers learned that they had missed the connection on which they had counted and that they could not reach Trehenna till nearly ten o'clock After weary waiting at Plymouth they took their seats in the little cold local train that was to carry them on another stage of their journey. Hot water cans put at Plymouth mitigated to some extent the iciness of the compartment. But that only lasted a comparatively short time, for soon they were set down at a desolate, shelterless wayside junction, dumped into the midst of a hilly, snow-covered waste, where they went through another weary way For another dismal local train that was to carry them to Trujana. And in this train, there were no hot water cans, so that the compartment was as cold as death. McCurdy fretted and shook his fist in the direction of Trahanna. And when we get there, we will still have twenty miles motor drive to Fowler's castle. It's a fool name, and we're fools to be going there. I shall die of bronchitis, wailed Professor Biggleswain. A man dies when it is appointed for him to die, said Lord Doyne in his tired way, and he went on smoking long black cigars. It's not the dying that worries me, said McCurdy. That's a mere mechanical process which every organic being from a king to a cauliflower has to pass through. It's the being forced against my will and my reason to come on this accursed journey, which something tells me will become more and more accursed as we go on. That is driving me to distraction. What will be, will be, said Doyne. I can't see where the comfort of that reflection comes in, said Biggleswade. And yet you've traveled in the east, said Doyne. I suppose you know the valley of the Tigris as well as any man living. Yes, said the professor. I can say I dug my way from Tekrit to Baghdad and left not a stone unexamined. Perhaps, after all, Doyne remarked, that's not quite the way to know the East. I never wanted to know the modern East, returned the professor. What is there in it of interest, compared with the mighty civilizations that have gone before? McCurdy, Took a pole from his flask. I'm glad I thought of having a refill at Plymouth, said he. At last, after many stops at little lonely stations, they arrived at Trehenna. The guard opened the door and they stepped out on the snow covered platform. An oil lamp hung from the tiny penthouse roof that, structurally, was Trehenna Station. They looked around at the silent gloom of white, undulating moorland, and it seemed a place where no man lived, and only ghosts could have a bleak and unsheltered being. A porter came up and helped the guard with the luggage. Then they realized that the station was built on a small embankment, for, looking over the railing, they saw below the two great lamps of a motor car. A fur-clad chauffeur met them at the bottom of the stairs. He clapped his hands together and informed them cheerily that he had been waiting for four hours. It was the bitterest winter in these parts within the memory of man, said he, and he himself had not seen snow there for five years. Then he settled the three travelers in the great roomy touring car covered with a cape car hood, wrapped them up in many rugs, and started. After a few moments, The huddling together of their bodies, for the professor, being a spare man, there was room for them all, on the back seat, the pile of rocks, the serviceable and all but airtight hood, induced a pleasant warmth and a pleasant drowsiness. Where they were being driven, they knew not, the perfectly upholstered seat eased their limbs. The easy swinging motion of the car soothed their spirits. They felt that already they had reached the luxuriously appointed home, which, after all, they knew awaited them. McCurdy no longer railed. Professor Biggleswade forgot the dangers of bronchitis, and Lord Doyne twisted the stump of a black cigar between his lips. ...without any desire to relight it. A tiny electric lamp inside the hood... ...made the darkness of the world to right and left... ...and in the front of the talc window still darker. McCurdy and Biggleswade fell into a doze. Lord Doyne chewed the end of his cigar. The car sped on through an unseen wilderness... Suddenly, there was a horrid jolt, and a lurch, and a leap, and a rebound. And then the car stood still, quivering like a ship that has been struck by a heavy sea. The three men were pitched and tossed, then thrown sprawling over one another onto the bottom of the car. Bigel Suede screamed. McCurdy cursed. Doyne scrambled from the confusion of rugs and limbs and, tearing open the side of the cape car hood, jumped out. The chauffeur had also just leaped from his seat. It was pitch dark, save for the great shaft of light down the snowy road cast by the acetylene lamps. The snow had ceased falling. What's gone wrong? It sounds like the axle, said the chauffeur ruefully. He unshipped a lamp and examined the car, which had wedged itself against a great drift of snow on the off side. Meanwhile, McCurdy and Bigglesway had alighted. Yes, it's the axle, said the chauffeur. Then we're done remarked Dwight I'm afraid so my lord what's the matter can't we get on asked Bigel in his querulous voice McCurdy laughed how can we get on with a broken axle the thing's as useless as a man with a broken back gad I was right I said it was going to be an infernal journey the little professor wrung his hands. But what's to be done? he cried. Trap it, said Lord Doyne, lighting a fresh cigar. It's ten miles, said the chauffeur. It would be the death of me, the professor wailed. I utterly refuse to walk ten miles through a polar waste with a gouty foot. McCurdy declared wrathfully. The chauffeur offered a solution of the difficulty. He would set out alone for Fowlis Castle. Five miles farther on was an inn where he could obtain a horse and trap and would return for the three gentlemen with another car. In the meanwhile, they could take shelter in a little house which they had just passed some half mile up the road. This was agreed to. The chauffeur went on cheerily enough with a lamp and the three travelers with another lamp started off in the opposite direction. As far as they could see they were in a long desolate valley a sort of no man's land, deathly silent. And I dismiss the supernatural as contrary to reason. But I have Highland blood in my veins, and that plays me exasperating tricks. My reason tells me that this place is only a commonplace moor, yet it seems like a valley of bones, haunted by malignant spirits who have lured us here to our destruction. There's something guiding us now. It's just uncanny. Why on earth did we ever come? Croaked Bigel Lord Doyne answered. The Koran says, Nothing can befall us but what God hath destined for us. So why worry? Because I'm not a Mohammedan, retorted Bigel You might be worse, said Duane. Presently the dim outline of the little house grew perceptible. A faint light shone from the window. It stood unfenced by any kind of hedge or railing a few feet away from the road in a little hollow beneath some rising ground. As far as they could discern in the darkness when they drew near, the house was a mean, dilapidated hovel. A guttering candle stood on the inner sill of the small window and afforded a vague view into a mean interior. Doyen held up the lamp so that its rays fell full on the door. Yet as he did so, an exclamation broke from his lips, and he hurried forward, followed by the others. A man's body lay huddled together in the snow by the threshold. He was dressed like a peasant, in old corduroy trousers and rough coat, and a handkerchief was knotted round his neck. In his hand he grasped the neck of a broken bottle. Doyne set the lamp on the ground, and the three bent down together over the man. Close by the neck lay the rest of the broken bottle. His contents had evidently run out into the snow. "'Drunk?' asked Bigglesway. "'Doyne felt the man, then laid his hand on his heart. "'No,' said he. "'Dead.' "'McCurdy leaped to his full height. "'I told you the place was uncanny,' he cried. "'It's Fay. "'Then he hammered wildly at the door. "'There was no response.' He hammered again till it rattled. This time, a faint, prolonged sound, like the wailing of a strange sea creature, was heard from within the house. McCarty turned round, his teeth chattering. "Did you hear that, Dorian?" "Perhaps it's a dog," said the professor. Doin, the man of action, pushed them aside and tried the door handle. It yielded. The door stood open, and the gust of cold wind entering the house extinguished the candle within. They entered and found themselves in a miserable stone-paved kitchen, furnished with poverty-stricken meagerness. A wooden chair or two, a dirty table, some broken crockery, old cooking utensils, a fly-blown missionary society almanac, and a fireless grate. Doyne set the lamp on the table. We must bring him in, said he. They returned to the threshold, and as they were bending over to grip the dead man, the same sound filled the air, but this time louder, more intense, a cry of great agony. The sweat dripped from McCurdy's forehead. They lifted the dead man and brought him into the room and after laying him on a dirty strip of carpet, they did their best to straighten the stiff limbs. Bigel put on the table a bundle which he had picked up outside. It contained some poor provisions, a loaf, a piece of fat bacon, and a paper of tea. As far as they could guess, And, as they learned later, they guessed rightly. The man was the master of the house, who, coming home blind drunk from some distant inn, had fallen at his own threshold and got frozen to death. As they could not unclasp his fingers from the broken bottleneck, they had to let him clutch it, as a dead warrior clutches the hilt of his broken sword. Then suddenly, the whole place was rent with another, and yet another long, soul-piercing moan of anguish. There's a second room, said Doyne, pointing to a door. The sound comes from here. He opened the door, peeped in, and then, returning for the lamp, disappeared. Leaving McCurdy and Biggleswade in the pitch darkness with a dead man on the floor. For heaven's sake, give me a drop of whiskey, said the professor, or I shall faint. Presently the door opened and Lord